Okay, um, so I'm Doreen. I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi, and um, some of you grew up with me in the program, and a lot of you I don't know, and I, um, I know you probably have been in this room a thousand times and heard people speak. My story is, my story starts with me being an obese child, and I was one of the people in the world who grew up obese and um, was always the fat girl, was teased, criticized, uh, pointed at. Um, I sat on a little table and it broke. Um, it was pretty awful. And I don't remember a day I wasn't on a diet or being told I shouldn't eat what I was eating or the question, should you be eating fat? Um, back in the 60s when I was a kid, diet pills were the way they helped people lose weight in Beverly Hills. <laughs> and so I was taken to Dr. Glass, the diet doctor, when I was seven. And I couldn't swallow pills, so they gave me capsules and they put it in my grape juice and stirred it up and I had to drink it. And I didn't know, you know, the, the results were... I don't even remember if I lost weight, but crying a lot and having little temper tantrums and being told I had to rest and all that. Kept food charts, weighed in by the doctor all the time. Um, then, um, as I got older, switching to a different kind of diet pill, which was called Preludin back then. I don't know what it is now. And then later, the pill that was basically Speed. I don't remember how old I was. Then, but I wasn't addicted to these. These really were pills I was given to lose weight. And the only time I really violated that was passing, getting speed in high school from a friend. But other than that, the, it was prescriptions that I was given because I was told I needed, or I begged for it, but it was not, it was because diet pills help you lose weight. It was always that and I um, was taught I would never be happy I wouldn't have well I'm not happy I would never have a relationship or be lovable because of how I looked and I was big boned and that was the way my life was going to be so I grew up as a girl feeling just hopeless and hating myself and I was suicidal by the time I was 16 and I've had severe depression um, back then, and I've lived with it where I came to find out after I was abstinent. Abstinence doesn't cure you of your problems. It gives you the ability to deal with your problems. So I didn't get a magic cure for depression. I also have a skin disorder that got worse when I was abstinent. Um, but what that meant was I had to learn how to live my life with abstinence being the most important thing in my life without exception. And over time, my skin is clear. I still battle a little bit, but nobody would ever know or could imagine. I'm not big-boned. I'm married 25 years. I have two gorgeous children. I um, have a mother I love and care about who lives here, which is why I come back to visit. Um, but the gift of all that is I also come back to my roots, you know, where I got abstinent and I can always come back here with my people here um, who have known me and grown with me here. But I also have OA now that is my way. I mean, what I need where I live in Olympia where it didn't exist when I got there. So anyhow, um, I came to OA when I was 18 
1978 on January 1st. And um, it was, I don't know if you guys know Crescent Heights or not. So it was the Crescent Heights meeting, and it was in the middle of the day. And, you know, that's a really depressing place <laughs> to go when you're new and you're in this spooky place. And you're young and it's hot, and I only had two things. I remember I had a three-piece wool camel suit that I thought looked good on me and a pair of jeans that had a rainbow and when remembers the rainbows <laughs> running up, but those jeans were worn in the middle, like you all, I'm sure, have experienced. Um, but at the meeting, the first thing was someone said they'd been binging and eating out of the freezer, and I thought that man was crazy. I, I had never heard the word binge. Um, I just knew I was fat, and you went on diets, or you were obese, or you were ugly. I didn't know... I never had the word binge, but of course, as you guys know, you start remembering, and I ate frozen food, Sarah Lee, out of the freezer. I ate macaroni and cheese out of the oven when it was hot, burning myself. I would make cookies and think I'm making them for the family, and then I would eat the burnt ones, and then I would eat some dough, and then, you know, you get into, like, it just goes. Um, I ate raw challah when it was rising, before it had risen. Um, and you don't know holla, it's bread with yeast. And you can imagine what happened to my stomach. <laughs> but I mean, the things we do with food, eating off the floor, you know, there was a cookie on the floor in high school in the stairwell and I picked it up and ate it, you know, and um, the sneaking and hiding and lying and thinking if you eat, peanut butter and your mother says did you eat anything and you say no well what do you smell like you know it's like can you hide that you ate peanut butter um, I also would try all different kinds of concoctions to try to kill the urge to eat so when I first came to OA um, it was different in the way that I tried to be like the cool people and back then cool people did moderate meals and that's what it was called moderate meals and you just kind of then were abstinent working the program but it didn't work for me and I ended up well smoking dope and binging and then I ended up falling apart like when I, when I after seven weeks I remember I just kind of had a nervous breakdown and it, it wasn't it was like I couldn't stop crying and I was running a library at UCLA and I completely fell apart and um, after that I quit school and I've always been the honor student and I've always did everything right always a great smile and um, I had to quit school because I just couldn't do it anymore had to get out of my parents house I had to you know, basically give up. And then when I binged again, it was after a year, and it was, started with a piece of cake at lunch at the bank I was working at. And then it took off, and it was only for a day that I binged, but it was absolute hell, and I couldn't stop. And it was like I was furious at everybody. You all lied to me. I am no better than I was. I'm alone. Nobody is really here for me. You all just liar full of it you know all of that and um the next morning when i woke up you know swollen i mean i had gotten cookies and threw them out the window and drinking diet coke and going to binge i mean i just was couldn't stop what was happening 
And at that point, um, when I woke up the next morning, somehow I knew that there was no stopping and that I had this image of a vat of chocolate pudding as big as this room and that would not be enough. I had an obsession with an, a birthday cake that had to be enormous and that would not be enough. And I, I wanted these things that like a little kid would be happy. I don't know what, but it was birthday cake was the image. And I thank God I called for help that morning. And again, I was sick, swollen, clothes didn't fit. I mean, you guys know sweaty, what it's like to wake up after binging. And I'll never, you know, forget how that felt. And I called for help and someone said, you know, you have to eat breakfast and eat lunch and she met me for lunch so like I had to eat my meals like that started it wasn't that I'm gonna get over how I feel and then I'll start and she met me and she hung in with me for the afternoon and then she couldn't stand being with me because I wanted to binge so bad I was like a crazy person but I was got through a second at a time a second at a time and then later people took over and came and be with me and they stayed with me and then they stayed overnight and then the next day you know I was frantic by the way to eat like like going through DTs only um, they said if you want to eat you go eat we're not going to stop you and I said I don't want to but I have to and they said you know you don't have to um, but you can go do it if you want to so the next day um, I was taken to a meeting and then from there, I was um, taken to someone's house, and I was basically 12-stepped in a way where they sat around, and they talked to me about each of their, how they got through it, and they got their sponsor on the phone, who then became my sponsor, and she met me at a meeting that night, and we sat down, and she gave me my food plan, which was three meals a day and nothing in between, and she gave me a plan that had quantities which you call, you know, weigh and measuring, which gave me something to hold on to. And then she said, call me every day at X time, and I want you to commit your food, and if you don't call me, I won't take your call. And there, by the way, there were no cell phones, so there were pay phones. So I had to take the bus before I went to work to get to the phone at a quarter to 8 or 7.15 to call her, and I had to stand at the phone, you know, watching my watch to call her. And this saved me because someone was taking over that powerlessness. I needed a sponsor because I didn't believe in God enough. I needed to turn my will and my life over, and I turned it over to my sponsor. And I had to make three phone calls a day. I had to do writing assignments. And by the way, does this all sound familiar about some of OA? People call it how. But that was just OA. And then I stayed absent. Oh, it was a meeting every day, 90 meetings in 90 days. And I would meet people to go with me, like, to a meeting. And someone, like, escorted me to a meeting or would have meals with me to go to a meeting. And we used to go out after. So it was basically I was carried through. And people, in a new way, invested in me and my abstinence because they wanted me to, to live. And I don't know what changed, but it was, I think, that ultimate surrender of I'll do anything you tell me. Tell me what to do, and, if, and I'll do it. And I did lose all my weight, um, and it, 
wasn't easy. I, like I said, things got worse um, in terms of my depression and my skin disorder. Um, and I ended up wanting to go back into my parents' house and be with them, and I needed taken care of. And I gave them rules. I mean, I was so controlling, but I was desperate. And it was like, if you want me to live here, this is what I have to do, and you can't stop me. And if you can't help me, because I was desperately in need of help because of my depression, then I will leave. And they, it was kind of like what you would think of going to your family, like it says in the big book, and explaining everything and seeing if that family, your family, would help you. And so that was the beginning of knowing I have to tell people what I need to do, and then they'll help me and support me. And if they won't, I go find others. But I am not a I do not keep it secret that I'm a compulsive overeater. And to this day, and it's been um, 33 years, um, I am still as much of a compulsive overeater as I always was. Food is an addiction. I have an addiction. Um, when things are hard or rough or upsetting, I have to be really careful because eating more food is still the thing that goes through my head or in my essence that that is going to make it easier. It's not happy. It's the edge off. Like eating to take the edge off. I can't handle feeling like this. I can't handle what's happening to me. And I gotta, I gotta get, you know, something. And so that is always going to be part of me. Only because I have abstinence day at a time, I don't have to act on that. And I have people who've known me every day of my abstinence, who know how to help me. They and I taught my husband how to help me and my kids how to help me. And um, unfortunately. They know I'm a compulsive overeater, and I really I don't have any credibility with food with them because they they know what I have to do, and I'm not a normal person. Um, and and actually, I'm not normal when it comes to food, and I have to do things like Peter had described to live my life, um, and then I get a life from that, and I have a very normal dream come true life with lots of problems. Lots of things that happen to me, things that happen to people I love. Um, I used to think if I worked a good program, nothing would happen to me bad, you know, and that, and that I wouldn't have problems. And the harder I worked my program, the less problems I would have. And I judged people who had problems because if they just worked the program and surrendered, they wouldn't have those problems. <laughs> And I'm, I'm really, really honest. I mean, I really thought that. I remember sitting in an AA meeting, and this man said, I went bankrupt, and I'm divorced for the third time, and I lost my house and my children, and, and this man was sober, you know, 10, 15 years, and I'm thinking, who is this guy? I don't want to I don't want what he has. That was, I don't know if you guys heard that, if someone has what you want. And I realized it's not those outward things that is what I want. I want calmness, and I want to be abstinent, and I need calmness to be abstinent, and I need quiet a lot of, you know, every day to be abstinent, and I need love around me. And, and when I say all that, it is there for me if I let it be there. And eating ruined everything. Binging ruined 
everything. I could never wait for the miracle. And you guys know, you know, turn the corner, the miracle's there, and you hear a miracle. A miracle is, I'm trying to think, a miracle is anything that you have, that you get if you, if you don't binge. Like, yesterday, I woke up and I was, I felt horrible, upset. You know, I'm with my mom and she has dementia, but she doesn't know it. And it's crazy in the house, and the windows were all closed um, because she believes you do that, and it was, what, 95 degrees. And I was just crazy because I thought, I can't leave my mother. I can't stand it here. I can't handle this, blah, 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 blah. And um, I just wanted to explode because I thought I had to do certain things. And... What I was taught in the program is you can't. And so I called my sponsor. I wrote, I called my sponsor who's in Connecticut. And she and I talked it through, and she said, you're powerless. And I couldn't remember what that meant. I couldn't remember what it felt like. I said, I don't know what to do. I don't know what powerless is. Should I leave and go to a hotel? And she said, you should leave and go to a hotel, or should I do this? She says, Doreen, that is not powerlessness. I said, but what should I do? Should I blah, 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 blah. And she said, Doreen, powerlessness is you don't know what to do and you give up. It's not figuring out what you have to do. It's saying, help me. I, have, I don't know what to do. I can't do anything. I, I give up. And, um, it, but it took talking for 15 minutes for her kind of like, you know, banging me in the head. And, um, and it wasn't mean or anything. It's just I needed her to keep going over it and over it with me. That, you know, you're powerless. And what does that mean? And she described it. And, um, and the thing is that the more, I have a lot on my plate, um, a lot of things in my life. And one of the main things in my life is I have a pretty bad health condition. I have epilepsy. And I didn't get that until um, night, uh, the year 2000, and I was abstinent 21 years. And that doesn't happen to people who are abstinent, right? I mean, I worked a good program, and to have something happen to my brain was like, it must be because I work a bad, you know, it's insane, this can't be happening. And it, it was horrible, it wouldn't go away, it was worse and worse for a year, um, and I take a lot of medicine, which is why I'm sitting. Um, I have good days, bad days. Um, I had to give up everything. And in the hospital, when I was having massive seizures, I had a couple massive seizures. The nurses knew, because I had already told them before I had the seizures, that this is how I eat. And if I have a seizure, this is what I want to make sure. And I remember getting the wires taken out of my head and telling them I needed two ounces of cheese and a piece of fruit and the nurses went out of their way and got me my food and I was in a blackout and when I had the car crash um, which was showed I had epilepsy um, in the blackout in the hospital I was able to recite my sponsor's phone number to my husband and say call her and next time I woke up in the blackout she was standing in front of me um, you know, this program, it's so much more than food. Um, my abstinence is three meals a day and nothing in between. And that is good enough, by the way. That is my abstinence. Because I have to have something that's good enough. It's, it's not do I meditate. Meditation is working the program. Writing is working the program. Abstinence is my foundation. And I am not always willing to work the program. 
So if you don't feel like working the program, it has nothing to do with your abstinence. If you want to stay abstinent, you have to work the program. And you have to have a sponsor who can help you work the program. And I believe that sponsor has to have more time of abstinence. And someone who has what I want um, has that calmness and a way to deal with what happens to them and they work the steps and it starts with powerlessness over food and unmanageability which where I was yesterday morning and I had to get to the third step to be able you know and when you're abstinence long time you just get it fast you, you can get to it faster most of the time than people. So when you think about long-term abstinence and why it's so important, is it helps you, I just find I get to solutions faster or ability to cope faster. Um, and um, for me, um, I do sponsor people. It's critical. You know, the chain, you have your sponsor, no, your sponsor on one side, your abs who's abstinent, your sponsor, and you sponsor, sponsor people and support them in being abstinent. And I do find it harder to sponsor new people only because what I believe is kind of like we have to, like, like I sponsor someone and they are required to sponsor. And then, so if I get asked to sponsor, I say, well, I can't do it by myself, so I need you, you know, here's someone I sponsor and also we can do it together. Or, you know, it's like the chain together. Um, I have a really bad memory, so you committing your food to me is not going to do very well because I won't be able to call you on it, you know, and you need someone, this is all my opinion, you know, to call you on your stuff. And I may not remember your stuff, so I, I need someone who can really remember your stuff. And people know I am here for them, but they have to know this is the package. You know, I am limited. I get tired. I sleep every day in the afternoon. So I'm not someone who takes calls 24-7. You know, I'm not someone who can be there for you when you're in trouble. I am there for you the best of my ability, and I have people around me who can help me be there for you. Um, so Zan, before I have to finish, Zan um, is a great example um, of us two people working the program together. We've been together for well over 30 years. Seriously, made a commitment that come hell or high water, we are doing this together. We can hate each other. We can fight. We can, we can be any way we want, but we are not abandoning each other. We can hate the program. It can fall apart. But we decided that OA as an institution is not, our abstinence is not contingent on OA as an institution. Overeaters Anonymous for us is we're abstinent together. And then we can work our program. I really believe I cannot do this alone. So I'm really invested in other people being abstinent. Um, and, you know, today there are cell phones, texting, email, I don't know what, I don't do Twitter, but I guess that's something to have a meeting on Twitter. Um, but there are many ways to get a meeting every day here in this world today. Um, the program is international. It doesn't mean meetings are in different countries. It means we can talk at any time in any place in this world. And um, it's a miracle. There, you get all the support you need in the world today. I mean, there's not, no, I want to say there's no excuse, but I think the point is, 
There is everything there we need to be abstinent if we're willing to ask for help. And I guess I will stop with that. This is time for questions only. There's no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leader are their own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. Okay. Um, it's interesting. I haven't had recreational sugar except what I used to abuse gum terribly. Terribly. Um, you know, where you get, I mean, everybody probably in abstinence at some point chewed a lot of gum. Um, and you were told you looked like a cow. <laughs> but I, one day I was so desperate for gum that I put a piece of bubble yum in my mouth and it wasn't sugar free and I spit it out. And, um, and I think it was like, I just, I'm eating that gum and I spit it out and called my sponsor right away. And it was, I, I could not chew gum for several years. I lost the permission to chew gum because it led me to be so desperate that I would risk my abstinence. So I don't know if that helps. Um, regarding children, um, unfortunately, I believe my disease has spread to my family. And it makes me really sad. Um, and I'm not saying they're compulsive overeaters because we can't say that. But no matter what I have done or tried to do, kids can always find sugar. <laughs> I mean, I would be told that my, one of my children would go to someone's house and sneak sugar, get sugar. They, I'd get a phone call that, is this okay? And she'd find it. She'd do it. I, I did that at people's houses where I'd sneak and take it. Or, um, so my children are now, uh, one is an adult and one is a grown-up teenager. And it's very... You know, it breaks my heart with food. I screwed them up, I think. I have no credibility because they only know I eat weird. You know, I eat abstinently. And when I cook, I'm not a very good cook because I don't want to. I'll cook how, you know, the plain chicken, plain fish, plain meat, steamed vegetables. And I'll try other things. But I really don't like thinking about food. I have hired people to make, you know, cook meals and all that. And it's, they're still all screwed up with food in my family. So, but I have beautiful, wonderful, happy children. Question was, when did I find I had a different concept of God? Well, I'm the educational variety. You know how it talks about that in a spiritual experience in the back of the big book where some people have like the instant thing. So my experience has grown over time. The very first time was when I, the first few days of abstinence when... I finally got that the only prayer I had to say was help. Like, I didn't have to pray. Da, 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 da. It was only help me. Like, I could just cry out, help me. And in myself, I could say, help me. That was the beginning of knowing that I don't have to, that I, I don't know, that it's not that hard or I can get help. And then I remember um, 
going with my sponsor to High Holy Day services, and I had never heard the God in the prayer book. I'd never, I didn't know in Jewish. I, mean, I grew up in religious school, but it, it was like awakening that God's in Judaism, like God, our Father, our King, and it's all over and over again. So suddenly I realized I could have a relationship with my religion with God in it. And um, I was taught to do the one ad. Okay, but, you know, you write a one ad to God, what you want in a God, and you ask for that. And, you know, mine, I need a loving God. So I talked to the rabbi over time and said, I do not believe in an angry, punishing God. And, and he said, but Judaism, you know, in the Bible, you know it says that. And I say, I don't care what it says. Because I get to, like, it's, I got to find what works for me. And at seven years of abstinence, um, I was at Roxbury Park when I was visiting at the Sunday morning meeting. And I, Natalie was there, and most of you know Natalie, or many of you know Natalie. And I went to her because I was at another bottom, just kind of spiritually or emotionally. And I said, I need help. I need help to be able to have some, I need spirituality. You know, I need help. I need, I didn't need thinness. I mean, by the way, thinness is critical to me. Don't get me wrong. Um, but um, I, I didn't know how to have that feeling just safe and secure in God. At that time, I was ready for more. And Natalie became my sponsor and helped me have that more direct relationship with God. But it has taken a lot of time. And living through the car crash I lived in 2000, I do believe I was protected like I want to say angels, but I, my car was protected. It sailed through a big intersection. I crashed into four cars, and I didn't get hurt. And people who knew me drove by and were able to. I mean, it was just a miracle thing. Um, and that was totally God. So I, I see God in my life. And I always look for that, too. Okay, so the question was, how do I deal with my depression today and not feeling sorry for myself or being depressed and having gratitude or how do you live with both and I do believe you can live with depression and gratitude anybody who says you can't have gratitude and anger at the same time don't listen to that you can't have I mean if I feel angry and depressed and all that I made a gratitude list because I'm feeling that way so for me I do have that duality it's just if I don't start looking at gratitude I will sink I've got to be willing to take the action and you know, think about, I have fingers, I have toes, I have eyebrows, I have kidneys, I have a heart, I have lungs, I have breasts, I don't have cancer, I have medication to take for my depression, medication for my epilepsy, um, I have elbows so I can move, you know, feed myself. Um, seriously, it's like, so I do, I mean, I go down to gas in the car that we can, I thank God every day for hot water. When I, so I get to take a shower and a bath and soap and I get to wash my hair and um, there's deodorant. I mean, I go to the, like, the very, you know, really, and I'm not kidding, I'm not being facetious when I say it. I did mention medicine. Um, I did find out that what I went through in my life did, you know, growing up and all, um, and is that I do have a chemical imbalance that wore me down and wore me down and wore me down. And I've tried different times to not take antidepressants, and I am, it, either I get suicidal, and it, and, or I can be so hard to live with, like, like it's, I don't want to be like that. And um, so I've been taking my medication for 22 years, 
and um, and that's why I think I can be married. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not kidding. Like for me, um, I was I couldn't act appropriately, and I mean like being selfish and self-centered instead of giving and kind and loving. And so I I do take medication, but that's not enough. That helps me work my program. It doesn't replace the program. The question is, is comparing how the obsession has changed or decreased or evolved over the years of abstinence, and if I could like rate it on a spectrum of 1 to 10, compared to when I was binging. And it's interesting because when I described the obsession and compulsion, I think you have obsession and compulsion when you're eating. You take away the sugar and you give up how you were eating and have your food plan or do what your sponsor says with your food. Or I know people go to a vet, uh, nutritionist and all that. And by the way, that was all before my, I mean, I do what I do with my food because I learned it 33 years ago. I'm, it's not the right thing health-wise people do today. People do today a whole lot of other stuff, you know, with, um, um, but the compulsion is removed being abstinent and having time. The obsession is no, in the beginning was horrendous and got better over time. And remember the saying the first 21 days, like kind of like you need 21 days to get out of your system. And the point is it got better and better. Um, today, the edge off can be cunning and baffling in terms of what I'm going through. And usually I'm doing way too much. I'm exhausted. I'm not feeling well, and I really am not doing what I need to do. So it, I want, I don't, it's so hard to pick a number because um, 10 is perfect and zero obsession. I have zero obsession today, but that means I always look forward to my meals. I mean, I know lunch is at 12.30 today, so what am I going to do between now and then? I mean, seriously, in my life, I do always know Breakfast, make sure I have my breakfast, where's lunch coming from, and where's dinner coming from. So if you call that obsession, I, I, it's not a good. That's not obsession. That's my recovery. Um, the desire I, to take first right, desire, okay, the desire to take the first compulsive bite. One of the things is I can tell when I'm eating more at my meal. So that's not a desire to take the first compulsive bite, but it's like slowly like creeping. So... It, I don't know what number to place with it, but, but um, I think if it were a 10, I would never care about my meals, but I'd eat them anyways. I think that's not me. <laughs> I, um, I don't know, except that um, if I'm not taking care of myself today, then I may have more trouble dealing with the quantity at my lunch or the quantity at my dinner. I don't like ever eat in between. If I ate something and put it in my mouth in between a meal, it would break my abstinence. And then I want to say unless, and I tried this, I tried committing to Zan that I would try a snack every day. This was a few years ago, whatever, because it was healthier. I tried to be healthier. I did it for two days. It made me insane. I said, I cannot deal with snacks. I'm sorry. It's not sorry to you, but like to the world. It may be healthier, but I can't do it.
what the question was is if I had two kinds of days, which I can have. There's the feeling good, I'm very healthy that day, I wake up and I feel really good, versus having a bad day when my seizures are active or I had them the night before or whatever. Well, so one of the things, unfortunately, I found out is I don't get guaranteed days. But if I rest, so I have a routine I've had to learn where mornings are my good time. And I love waking up in the morning. I'm usually happy. You know, I wake up. I could start feeling bad physically still. So I don't know how long I get that really good thing. Um, I always have to, to have a good day. I have to schedule in. So there's a lot of scheduling. Oh, if I weren't abstinent, I, abstinent, I could not manage epilepsy. Because I take medicine three times a day, just like I eat. I have to, I get between breakfast and lunch a lot of times where I can get work done. I can feel okay. I can drive safely more. Then I have to rest. And then there's not really a guarantee. But when I, sometimes when I, um, I can then get to dinner, but I may have to lie down the rest of the time. Um, but if I, I can, it's not always like that. But if I assume I'm normal, just like if you assume you're a normal eater, it blows it for me. So I have to live like I don't assume I'm normal. I assume that I have to do what I, Doreen, have to do, not what you have to do. I have a way I have to live. And then when I have bad days, it's something my sponsor taught me early on before I was sick, was it's good enough to eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner and lie on the couch. If that's all you can do, eat your breakfast, get in bed. Get up and eat your lunch, get in bed. Get up and eat your dinner, go to bed. That's good enough abstinence. That's a successful day. And that, had came, that thank God, was what I was taught healthy 33 years ago, and it has helped me being sick or having my challenge. I love that health challenge um, because that has to be good enough. And I usually try to, and I, I'm very much into doing service. Like I see the, my obligation in life is to be a service. Like truly, like to, I mean, to, an, to maybe to an extreme, um, which really gets me upset when I can't do something for someone else because I don't feel good. But I try to accomplish one thing a day um, that's productive where, I mean, productive in the sense that have I reached out and tried to help someone for that day, no matter how I feel. Even with the seizures and all, I do try because it makes me feel like a, a, norm, a healthy person instead of like a sick person. Sure, now that's a great question. It had to do with how exercise has played a role in my abstinence and recovery over all these years. I was terrified of exercise because <laughs> when I was a kid, I was teased. I was in remedial PE when I was a little girl. I'm serious. <laughs> um, and um, it wasn't because I wasn't coordinated. It was because I was obese. You know, I, anyhow. But um, when I, my, I, it was, it was like this huge accomplishment to take a walk. And like, we have a, this is just one part, but walking up, we walk on the path when I come to visit. There's the path from Doheny and Santa Monica Boulevard up to Wilshire and Santa Monica Boulevard and back. And that is a treat for me, but that used to be the challenge. I mean, I don't know if that makes any sense, um, but it's like, it's 
delightful to do that. But that was a big deal because I think I was a kind of agoraphobic when I first got abstinent. And I was scared to do anything but go to meetings and be with people, which I was taught was good enough. You know, if that's, all, if that's what you have to do, but I wanted more. And um, I remember in, it took me a lot of years, but someone went to the health club with me in the program and at the Y, and she'd go work out with me. Um, exercise wasn't a big a deal when I got abstinence in terms of health-wise. You know, so it was more can I do it, not you have to do it. Um, in, since I got sick as, you know, and I would exercise three times, you know, health, before I got year 2000, I would exercise, you know, three times a week and, um, all that, but, um, never compulsive because I do know our disease can flip flop. You know, you can be an overeater, which I am, but you could also become, if you lose too much weight, you can flip to anorexia you can flip to exercise addiction. So I, do, I watch that happen to people. So I stay very moderate about everything. Um, but now what's hard for me or makes me sad is exercise a lot of times is one more thing. Like if today, because of my health and the medicine I take, to exercise is like a task. And it's not, it's that I can, it makes me tired. It doesn't, it's no longer gives me more energy, which makes me sad. Um, and so, I mean, I took a long walk yesterday morning on the path. I did work out with um, my friend with her trainer the other day, but I do have balance problems and all that, or I can go exercise and I can't drive the car home. So I do struggle with that. So it cannot be mandatory. It's like, cool, I got to exercise today. Oh, okay.